Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. chapter. And if you have missed any of the previous weeks, let me encourage you to go back in the podcast and listen uh, to previous stories about Jonah, because it really is not the story you think it is. Um, We're familiar with the outline, but we don't really know the meaning of the story, because the story has been kind of uh, adopted into a children's story. And it's really not. It's it's really an unsettling story that's meant to ask us some deep questions. But just a quick overview, Jonah was called by God as a prophet of Israel to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a city in Assyria, and Assyria was the violentest empire at the time. In fact, it was the most violent empire the world had ever seen. And if you watch TV, you can think of Negan and the saviors from The Walking Dead. You can think of their brutality. You can think of the coldness of Killmonger from Black Panther. These People were violent. And so we understand when Jonah is resistant to go to Nineveh, he does not want these people to get an opportunity to repent. But God says, I see their evil, and their evil is offensive to me, and I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to call them to repent, or I will destroy their city. Their violence is so evil that they are not going to exist unless they repent. And Jonah's like, I don't even want want to do that. I don't want to go to those people. So he runs, right? He runs down to Joppa. He gets on a boat that's headed to Tarshish. He's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Of course, the Lord catches up with him in a storm, and Jonah is thrown overboard. And in God's mercy, a big fish is sent to rescue Jonah from drowning. Well, in the belly of that fish, Jonah repents. He turns towards the presence of the Lord. The big fish spits him out. He goes to Nineveh in chapter 3. He preaches in 40 days, if you do not repent, the city will be destroyed, and the whole city repents. From the lowest class person all the way up to the king, the whole city repents of their evil that the Lord had seen and called out. And God, in his mercy, sees their repentance from their violence and evil, and he has mercy on them. He relents from destroying the city of Nineveh. And we really ended last week by talking about the judgment and the mercy of God. And if the story ended at chapter 3, we might say it's a happily ever after story. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end in chapter 3. There's one more chapter, which we'll look at today, where we look at Jonah's response to God's mercy after the Ninevites repent. And instead of being a happily ever after story, it's really an angrily ever after story. Because God asked Jonah some very tough questions about Jonah's anger. And we're meant to actually hear those questions and try and answer them ourselves about our anger. This last chapter is really meant to probe our hearts as we think about God's judgment as we think about God's mercy, and as we think about our enemies. There was a while where I thought I wouldn't have enemies in life, but life is much too broken for that. 
if you don't have enemies, wait 10 years. Someone will cheat you out of something. Someone will do something to you, and they will become an enemy. In fact, Jesus is not afraid to talk about enemies because he knows it's just a reality of life. And so in light of that, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 4 and think about our enemies. But first, let me pray. Father of mercies, we pray that you would be merciful to us again and that you would take your word deep into our hearts that we might be transformed once again and that we might become a people who act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, we're going to start in 3 verse 10 and go all the way through 4.11. The word of God says that God saw their actions, the actions of the Ninevites, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching wind the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and you did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a day. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. The word of God. I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine that you've died, and in your death, you are journeying in the afterlife towards the heavenly city of God, and you can see it off in the distance, and as you walk towards the heavenly city to spend eternity with God, there in the pathway towards the heavenly city is a house, and you think, that's strange. So you go to the front door, and there's really no way around the house. You have to go through the house. So you knock on the door of the house, not really knowing what else to do. And then the door opens, and there, standing in the doorway, 
in between you and the heavenly city is that person. It's that person, that, that person who cheated you, that person who lied to you, that person who kept you from making your life better, it's your enemy. Your enemy is there in that house, and as soon as they open the door and you lock eyes with them, you are filled with rage and anger because it's fresh in your mind what they did to you. They truly wronged you, and so you have this sense where you feel right to be angry. But then they look at you and you say, let's go. They say, let's go, and you follow them through the house and out the back door, continuing to the path to the heavenly city, and you honestly don't want to enter into heaven walking right next to that person, but you don't seem to have any choice. And so you come up to the gate of the the heavenly city, and when you get there, there's a person there standing with a clipboard, and they say your name, and you say your name, and they ask your enemy their name, and they say their name, and the person looks at you and says, okay, so-and-so, why should you come into heaven? And you're a Christian. You believe in the gospel. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And so you say this. You say, it's nothing I have done, but it's the mercy of God through Jesus Christ in dying on the cross. And you say it with boldness and confidence. But as you say it, your enemy next to you is saying the exact same thing. Now, the funny thing is they're not copying you. They're saying the same words with the same pace as if you were both reading from a script. And you look over and you're like, when are you going to shut up? And then you turn back to the gatekeeper and you say, I deserve God's judgment, but Jesus took all of God's wrath against my sin on himself on the cross Therefore, I am fully forgiven in him, and in view of that mercy, I have given my life to him. But the person next to you says the exact same thing at the same pace, as if you're both reading from a script. And you're kind of there looking at them like, what gives here? That feeling that you feel is a little bit of how Jonah was feeling. Now, That's what I said about the heavenly city. That's not actually how it happens. It's just a parable that I made up. But it it provokes a feeling in us that might be how Jonah feels. He had gone to this extremely great city, this extremely great city of Nineveh that was located in the Assyrian Empire, a violent, brutal empire that was the enemy of his people, Israel. And Israel wasn't just any people. Israel was God's people. And God had seen the evil and injustice of Nineveh. And he threatened to demolish the city just like he had threatened to demolish and did demolish Sodom and Gomorrah. But when that threat comes through Jonah, when Jonah preaches, the whole city repents. They turn from their evil way and God relents. And rather than Jonah being happy about their repentance and the mercy of God, Jonah is angry. Jonah's furious. Jonah is extremely upset. 
In fact, he's still in the city. He hasn't even left the city, and he begins to pray to God. And he says this in verse 2 and 3. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah hasn't even left Nineveh yet. He's still in the city, and he offers this bizarre prayer, and he says, man, when I was at home among my people, which God are actually your people, and these people in the city right here, they're the very threat to my people. They're the very threat to your people. Do you remember, God, that I told you? I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to show mercy to these people that do not deserve it. And now that these people are still here, they're still our enemies. They've repented, but we are still in danger. They deserve judgment. And that's why I fled. And Jonah takes one of the most famous scriptures of the Bible and throws it back in God's face, basically saying, I knew you would be a pushover, God. You've gone too far this time. In showing mercy to these people, it's just too far. And in this moment is one of the greatest points of irony in the story. It's one of the greatest points of irony when Jonah is mad at the mercy of God. Because what in saying this particular scripture, he's saying, because of your mercy, my enemies are still breathing. Not realizing that the scripture comes from a time when God showed his people mercy. In other words, because of God's mercy, his people are still breathing. In the book of Exodus, God delivers Jonah's people, Israel, out of oppression from Egypt. And he says, I'm not choosing you because of anything about you. I'm choosing you because of everything about me. You give me nothing, and I'm going to offer you my mercy and love and my commitment. And God makes a covenant promise with them and says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'm not doing this because you deserve it. I'm doing this because I'm merciful. And God says, will you be in this relationship with me to the people of Israel? And they say, yes. And God says, if you're going to be in relationship with me, it requires that you obey my commandments, especially the Ten Commandments. And God gives the commandments to Israel, to Moses. And the first two commandments are that they shall have no other gods before Yahweh. And that they shall make no graven images. They shall make no idols that represent gods. Those are the first two commandments. And they say, God, we will do those along with all the other commandments. We will obey you. And Moses, after he delivers the commandment, goes back up onto the mountain to meet with God. And the people, they get a little bored. They get a little bored. And so they gather together gold. And they make a golden calf. And they make this golden calf, which breaks commandment one and commandment two. And then the golden calf is held up. And in front of all the people, it's said, here is your God who saved you out of Egypt. What? That is ridiculous. What are you people thinking? Well, God is meeting with Moses up on the mountain while this happens, but he still sees what's happening down at the bottom, and God is furious. 
I've just saved you because of my mercy. You've agreed to follow my commandments, and you can't even follow commandment one and two. And God tells Moses, this people has now entered into the part of the relationship, not the blessing for obedience, but the curse because of disobedience. They have agreed to this. I am going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. They've broken their agreement. They signed up for this. But God, in his mercy, does not wipe out the people of Israel. He disciplines them. But instead of demolishing them, he shows mercy. For breaking the top two commandments, the easiest ones to see when you read through the commandments because they're at the top. And Moses meets with God again. And God reveals himself to Moses and says this in Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. Because that's what he just done to Moses' people. And here in this moment of irony, Jonah is calling on this scripture to say, I knew you were like this, God. I knew you were a pushover. I knew you were going to show mercy. And Jonah forgets that his people would not exist at all if God was not this very same way for them. He misses it. God has withheld the judgment deserved to the Ninevites, and God has withheld the judgment deserved to Israel because God is merciful, because he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And the irony here is that Jonah sees himself as morally superior to the Ninevites. They don't deserve your mercy, God. These people shouldn't even exist, forgetting that his people have broken the top two commandments and they wouldn't exist if it weren't for God's mercy. But Jonah is frothing mad. He's so mad, he can't even live. He can't stand the sight of his enemies not being demolished. And in verse 4 and 5, God asks this question. Is it, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? And Jonah replies, oh wait, Jonah doesn't reply. Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Now, let's try and answer that question for a moment. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Nineveh was a violent people. If you look up the ancient Assyrian Empire and what they did to their enemies, you will not be able to read very far because it is grotesque and it is brutal. And there is a sense where there is a righteous anger about the injustice that Nineveh has done against their enemies, against the people that they captured, 
against the people that they enslave. This is not a just society, and injustice deserves righteous anger. But this has turned into a just society. They, they have repented. They have turned away from the very evil that God has said, I will destroy you for. And in light of that, God asks Jonah, Jonah, is your burning anger good? How does it taste in your soul? What will appease your anger, Jonah? And we get no answer from Jonah. He didn't want to answer the question. Instead, he goes east, which is interesting because if he wanted to go home, he would have gone southwest. But he goes east outside the city, and we get this sense that he's like, maybe they'll turn back to their evil, and then God will pound them. And I'm going to, like, eat popcorn and watch and wait for that. So Jonah goes up and sets out camp just east of Nineveh, hoping, waiting, judgment that judgment might fall. And God sees Jonah there, a fool, waiting for God's judgment, and God shows Jonah mercy by appointing this plant. Just as God had appointed a big fish to save Jonah, he appoints a plant to grow over Jonah and and save him from the sun. And in God's mercy, this tree shades Jonah, saving him from the discomfort. And for a moment, Jonah goes from anger to happy because he's more comfortable as he sits out there eating his popcorn, waiting for God to change his mind and judge Nineveh. But then God appoints a worm to come and eat that plant and take away the shade. And the plant withers and dies, and then a hot wind comes, and it's scorching down on Jonah, and he grows so faint in his fixation to watch Nineveh. And I can't help but ask, why didn't you just go back in the city and get some shade? Because I want to see what will happen. He's so fixated on what might happen. And in verse 9, as the sun was rising, God appoints a scorching wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and again, he wants to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah a second question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. Angry enough to die. In verse 10 and 11, the Lord says, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and you did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may, Jonah, let me ask you a question, Jonah. May I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals. Jonah, you didn't make the plant. I'm the creator. I made the plant. And the plant was only here a day. And you're already angry about it. You cared so much about this little plant. Can I not care about this great city that has 120,000 people in it? Full of people who are so lost that ingrained in their culture is violence and evil. They are so misguided that they don't know their right from their left. Can I care about these misguided lost people, Jonah? Can I show them mercy? And the bizarre thing is, 
this is where the book ends. We don't even hear Jonah's reply. It just ends here, and the last word in the book is animals or cattle. Like God cares about the cattle. Jonah, is that all right? Can I care about their cows? And the reason the book ends that way is because the question isn't really just to Jonah, it's to us as well. The question is really an invitation for us to reflect on God's judgment and his mercy and how we think about and live in the presence of enemies. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. And it invites us to a couple things. First of all, we see here an invitation to see your enemies as misguided and lost. See, we often think when our enemies approach us that it is premeditated and it is intentional and they are evil to the core. And maybe they are. But there's an invitation to reflect here and say, in their evil, in their violence, in whatever they did against me, aren't they not still completely misguided and lost? There's an opportunity for us to get in the other person's shoes and say, what they did is not right. What they did deserves justice. And yet, are they not misguided? To open our hearts just a little bit. But we're called to even go deeper. Secondly, we're called to even see how we might even be like our enemies in some way. Because... God asked Jonah, there are these people who are misguided and can't distinguish between their right and their left. They are lost. They are living in evil. They are running away from me. Has anybody else run away from me in this story, Jonah? Has anybody else in this story, Jonah, been misguided? Has anybody else been so dumb that they don't know their right hand from their left hand, Jonah? Anybody else, Jonah? And the invitation is for Jonah and us to examine how do we think we are morally superior when in reality we might be lost and foolish as well. There are times when we have deeply displeased God and run away from him and run towards evil. And I don't say that lightly because I know your stories and I know some of you have experienced injustice and I know some of you have been deeply hurt and I know some of you have been cheated. And the temptation for us in that is to say, I would never be like them. I could never do what they did. Pastor, you don't know how deeply that person did evil against me. And you're right, I do not. And you might even say you can't compare the atrocities of the Ninevites to Jonah's running. I mean, the Ninevites killed thousands of people, and you're talking about Jonah just running from God. Those, those aren't the same. Or are they? Jonah, were you in the boat at the bottom of the boat, like hiding in the bottom of the boat when people's lives were at stake up on the deck, when people were screaming for their lives and yet you were asleep because you didn't value human life. Jonah, the Ninevites don't value human life, but here's a pretty obvious story where you did the same. And Jonah, this deep hunger you have for the total destruction of the Ninevites, 
does that come from a lack of value of human life? Jonah, you might be a little bit more like the Ninevites than you first thought. And when Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he never says that murder is the same as anger. But he does say that anger deeply displeases God just like murder. And while we know that adultery and lust are not the same thing, both adultery and lust deeply displease God. And we know that wanting what someone else has isn't the same as stealing what someone else has. Yet those, both of those, the action and the attitude, deeply displease God. And here's the catch. Both of them need God's mercy. So there's an invitation for us to see how our enemies need mercy just like we do from God. And the amazing thing is God gives mercy freely. But we have to be careful that we don't say, mercy from God for me, but not for thee. I get mercy from God, but you do not. We have to be careful because then we're saying that we deserve God's mercy and the other person does not. But once you say you deserve mercy, it's no longer mercy. Mercy is unowed. Mercy is risky. Mercy is scandalous because it's freely given. Whenever mercy is given, everyone watches and goes, that's too much. That's too much. But the greatest mercy shown was from God to sinners like you and me. God did not wait till we repented to send Jesus. God did not wait till you and I understood what sin was to send Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ came and died for ungodly people like you and me because of God's mercy. Before we owned up to our sin, before we saw God's holiness, before we repented, God was merciful and sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me. And we should look at that and go, we don't deserve that. For our spiritual crimes against God, God's mercy, to me, it's, it's too much. But we often think that mercy for me from God, but not for thee. Or this, mercy to me but not through me. We want mercy to me, but we don't want to give that mercy to other people. And this will cause us to wrestle deeply. This will cause us to wrestle deeply as we think about our enemies, but this is the wrestle that Jonah points us to when it ends with this book that just says, as well as many animals. We're meant to wrestle deeply with where God's justice and mercy, where's the line there and what do I need from God? And am I willing to receive that from God but not give that to other people? We're meant to ask ourselves the question, do I do well to be angry? Do I do well to be angry? And you might say, yes. Evil has been done against me and justice has been been done against me. And there is such a thing as righteous anger. I mean, that's the very reason that God came against Nineveh. It was righteous anger for the violence of these people. And yet, in Jonah watching east of Nineveh, for a people that have owned up to their evil and repented, Jonah, does your anger taste good now? Why are you so fixated? Do you want them to repent of their repentance? Or are you glad that they repented and were shown 
mercy by God? Do you, do you dream of settling the score? Or do you dream of those people turning around and receiving mercy? God confronted Nineveh. Their evil stunk before him. And yet, when they turned, he did not judge. He showed mercy. This week, I'm sure you're aware of what's happened in Dallas with the trial of Amber Geiger for the killing of Gotham Jr. Amber Geiger was a 30-year-old female police officer who went to her apartment complex and I believe it was at night and she went to the wrong floor. She went to the apartment that was either right above or right below her. This was a year ago. Went into the house and there it was a young black man from St. Lucia just watching TV and eating ice cream. She assumed he was an intruder and pulled out a weapon and shot him. He died. And a year later, this week, the trial happened. And Amber Geiger was convicted, and I believe it was of manslaughter, and given 10 years. I don't realize every one of you feel some kind of way about that. But after the trial and after the sentencing, the family was given an opportunity to do what they call victim impact statements, which is an opportunity for the family to confront the perpetrator, for, for the family to go and say something to Amber Geiger about the impact that they've had on their life. And Botham Jean, his little brother, went just 18 years old, and while the rest of the family, I don't believe, did statements, he decided to. And he got up, it's on video, you can look it up on YouTube, and he said this, he said, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I, I just, if you, if you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you can go to God and ask him, he will forgive you too. I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die like my brother did. I personally want the best for you. And, and immediately that episode was all over social media. It was, it was my feed. And I found there were two responses to that. One, I found both black and white Christians and Christians of all different colors were celebrating this awesome display of mercy that points us to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But then I also saw another thread which didn't say they weren't celebrating the mercy, but just said, hey, wait a minute. Um, please don't celebrate the mercy if you did not grieve the injustice. Don't celebrate the mercy if you did not grieve the wrongdoing because God is a God of both mercy and justice. I mean, when Jesus came and taught about the summary of the law, he said the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy. And I think there's something that we have to understand in our country. We're quick to say, we can be quick to say, and I can be quick to say this was an accident. But that is not the wrestle that many people of color have. 
because Botham Jean was not responsible for that woman's gun, she was. And that family will never get that young man back. And I think about what that would be like if that happened to one of my children or to one of the young black men in our church. And to think about never getting him back and the response to that being 10 years. to understand what many people of color grieve in our society. We know it was an accident. We're not thinking in terms of settling the score, but what does it mean about our dignity as human beings that we could be doing nothing wrong and someone could walk in and shoot us and they only go to jail for 10 years for that? And to hear the voices of people say, we can't even eat ice cream in our home while watching can understand what people of color are mourning with this injustice. And for us to come and push on forgiveness and push on mercy without fully understanding the grief and the loss. A friend of mine, him and his wife went to the hospital to have a baby and there was complications with the baby and the hospital mishandled the complications and the baby died. It wouldn't be right for me to go and say, mercy, for forgiveness, like to push on that. There's a grief that needs to happen. There's an acknowledgement of the injustice that needs to happen. And there, there's something that we have to understand is happening in the hearts and minds of black folk in our country and in our church. That's all true. At the same time, understanding that makes Brant, Botham's little brother, makes his display of mercy even more extraordinary. It makes it even more extraordinary. I remember how angry I could get as an 18-year-old boy at nothing. And this young man chose to face the woman who killed his brother and forgive and offer mercy. And just because he offers mercy doesn't mean that that washes over justice. Jesus says that the summary of the law is about mercy and justice. Those are the weightier matters of the law. And it's amazing that he said as he looked at that woman, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing. And that Botham would want you to do that. Because ultimately, when we talk about justice and mercy, we're not talking about a courtroom in Dallas. And we're not talking about some little camp east of Nineveh. We're talking about a hill called Calvary. We're talking about a hill called Calvary. God cares about your enemy because you were God's enemy. Exodus 34 Jonah didn't mention this part. The Lord passes in front of Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Amen. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
unless someone steps in and takes the punishment for the guilty. And that is what Jesus Christ did on that cross on Calvary. We were God's enemies, and God still sent Jesus to the cross. Willingly, he went to die in our place. And that death on the cross is the greatest act of injustice that the world has ever seen. Because Jesus perfectly loved God, he perfectly loved his neighbors, and yet he went willingly to the cross to willingly suffer, to willingly be tortured for you and for me. It sounds strange to say, but in that moment that he was suffering for sin on the cross, Jesus was the most offensive person to God that had ever lived. Because all of our sin was put on him. And the Father turned his back on Christ. Just as God asked Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? I think about the Father asking the Son on that cross in the midst of all the injustice. Jesus, hanging on the cross, do you do well to be angry? And the Son praying back, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus chose to submit to cruel torture for you and for me so that our guilt could be punished, so that God's mercy could be released, so that we could be a people who love justice and love mercy, so that we would be a people who, when we're, we're asked, do we do well to be angry? Our first thought is what Jesus did on the cross. And that we would long for the repentance of others, not so that we could offer payback, but so that we could see them come to know Jesus Christ. See, we're ultimately not looking at a courtroom or a city that Jonah longed for to be destroyed, but a cross in this table. It's a table of mercy table that reminds you that God's justice for your sin has been met when Christ died, when his blood was shed on the cross. Jesus, knowing that he was going to go undergo incredible torture and injustice for God's enemies, he took bread and he broke it the night before he was betrayed. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Take and drink. Friends, all of us need an incredible amount of mercy. And we need mercy to offer mercy to our enemies. But the place to get full on that mercy is this table. To be reminded that we were once enemies with God. But in his great mercy, he sent Christ to die for us. And that Jesus paid the full price for our sin. He underwent injustice. He was separated from God so that you and I might be restored. Not as second-class citizens of Father God, but as his beloved children. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. Download our app by searching New City HH in your app store. We'll see you next week.